welcome to the very first edition of the If These Old Walls Could Talk podcast uh, with me, Joe Yule. And I'm currently sitting at the very top of the old town ramp, uh, just squatting at the other side of the big, big, big wooden doors that lead up to the old town of Dalt Villa. And it just suddenly occurred to me, really, that this would be the absolutely most perfect spot to record the introduction to today's episode to our very first edition of unraveling and unveiling the inspiring stories of the older generation um, people who have more wisdom than any others the ones that have been on this planet for a hell of a lot longer than most of us so i thought it would be a really great a wonderful gift and tribute to the first episode of this podcast to be joined by my very own family member, Mr. Colin Yule. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you too, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us on the If These Old Walls Could Talk podcast. Yes, well, if they could talk, I wouldn't have to. <laughs> that could be quite uh, quite a blessing sometimes. Well, yes, I'll leave you to decide who can talk best. <laughs> It's not a competition. No, well, the walls look pretty sturdy, so they might outlast me. <laughs> well, I think they've been here for, yeah, a good few centuries. I don't know the exact timing of these uh, wonderful old walls that we're surrounded by, which are currently reverberating some very noisy petrol heads in the background, which um, is quite apt, really, considering you happen to be one yourself. This is true. I'm not quite so noisy, but I'm a petrol head. <laughs> I beg to differ on that front as well. I guess there's going to be a lot of disagreement on today's podcast. Yes, yes. Just remember, I'm perfect and you're not. <laughs> how could I forget? So how old are you, Colin? I'm 82 and I'll be 83 next April. And you were born when? 1937. My word. I was very young at the time. <laughs> You're still looking very young for a man of 82. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Mm. Also, that um, oil of old lady I put on every day. The oil of uh, all of you lay. Yeah, yes, oil, very yes. youthful. I call it oil of old lady. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it, it's it's all right. That is definitely clearly some sort of secret to your uh, boat race, which is looking shinier and more youthful and less wrinkled than a lot of people I've seen at your age. Well, it's managed to keep the rain out for the last 82 years, so we're ahead of the game. I thought that was just your uh, sunshine roof, as you called it, when you started well, yes. to go bald. No, my uh, sunshine, yes. <clears throat> yeah, unfortunately, it's sunshine roof you can't close. But there you go. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there's many secrets to um, youthfulness. Not that I would um, really know, because you know, I'm 40 years younger than you are. But I think there are obviously many things that have have kept you healthy and well uh, I think not drinking a drop your entire life has probably been in at number one of the reasons you probably look a lot better than a lot of people your age well I must confess I did actually have one about 63 years ago but what was uh, it but, um, it was alcohol that's all I know and I didn't like it and so that made me say well why bother I prefer a cup of tea and how have you kind of gotten away with that your whole life without sort of bowing down to peer pressure? Well, early days it was difficult. People seemed to think there was something wrong with you if you didn't drink. There may or may not be something wrong with me, I don't know, but it's not because I don't drink. I just don't like the taste. If you told someone you don't like tea or you don't like coffee, they would accept it. But if you say you don't like alcohol... I mean, I have had people in the past sort of 
just buy me a drink and put it on the counter you will drink it you will give in and there used to be a lot of peer pressure but I found a way around that was you sort of had a secret look round you then leant over into their ear and say I used to be an alcoholic and all of a sudden they accept you that you don't want to drink they will accept that you're an alcoholic and you drink too much but they won't accept you just don't like the taste taste well, I guess there's many schools of thought as to why that might be. I think people like to feel better about their own, you know, um, social acclimatisation, things that make them feel natural in their own habitat. And drinking is one of those things that's, you know, socially and widely socially acceptable. Um, but I think one of the things that you used to say about uh, people that called themselves social smokers were they were anti-social smokers. Yes, definitely, because that affects other people. Uh, if you have a quiet drink and don't get drunk, it's, there's no harm whatsoever and good luck to you. But smoking, if you're close to someone, they're smoking as well. But fortunately, things have changed since my day. Uh, and now it is finally got through that it's not a good idea to sit in a room and put smoke down your lungs. Who thinks it could be good to put smoke into your body for any reason? I don't know. But there's a many, many things that have have changed since your day and I guess back then smoking was kind of cool oh yes I, I do remember thinking it looked quite good to have a puff of a cigarette and then sort of just flick it away in a very macho macho style uh, but also that now <laughs> becomes littering anyway so the whole thing was horrible so why anyone did it I don't know but it's a free world it's up to them if they want to commit suicide slowly who am I for to stop them but I think, you know, there's many kind of movie stars that embellish the kind of behavioural patterns that, you know, a lot of people have taken on board throughout the years. Obviously, that's changed enormously now in today's sort of Hollywood world. But, you know, back then, um, smoking, you know, drinking, being very slim and elegant and, you know, kind of driving around in, uh, you know, cars that not everyone had at that point in time were all things that you would probably, I guess, begin to aspire to have. Well, yes, there were certainly uh, people on the screen that you tried to emulate because cinema was very important to you in those days. There wasn't the television. And you used to wander down to the local cinema not really knowing what was on, but if it was you were allowed in because of your age, in you went. And you then did one of the most silly things ever. You went in any time, which was usually halfway through a film, so you saw the end sat there and then saw the beginning and nudged your friend and said this is where we came in and then you'd get up and go out very strange you'd never think of that now in fact it's it only changed when alfred hitchcock um banned people from actually coming into the cinema halfway through his films because he didn't want it spoiled and since then or since that point people realize no, it's not very sensible, is it? Let's go and see it from the beginning, which we all do now. Mm. That's just hilarious, really, that you can just, like, stroll in and sit there and watch as many films as you wanted as well. Yeah, yes, and uh, half the time you didn't know really what the film was like. It was categorised, there was A's and U's, and you just went to your local cinema, and if it was a film that vaguely interested you or you were allowed in, you sat there, usually halfway through it, round. And then, of course, you saw the news, because unlike now, where you get news updates on the television or on your mobile phone every minute, at Pathé News, you only ever saw when you went to the cinema, and half the time it was a month old anyway. But you never used to pay for the cinema, I, uh, I seem to recall. 
Oh, well, there was a certain sort of provider in actually getting in without paying, so you could wait by the doors, and when people were coming out, you could nip in. Um, and that was sort of, even though you had the money, it was just cheek. And there was one, we used to have what they call, for kids, Saturday morning pictures. Um, I once had a job with marshalling kiddiewinks across the zebra crossing outside before it and then you got in for nothing but the best one was we used to take um, go to a bombed out building which was very close to the uh, cinema and take the paper dado railing off and give it to the very very short-sighted attendant and rush in and you could get away with it quite a few times or of course you could wait till it was someone's birthday and then they got in free and they would go up to the top and then to the fire scrape and drop that down so the next two got in and invariably the whole street could get in when it was one person's birthday all for Saturday morning pictures <laughs> that's where I get it from <laughs> <laughs> keep going girl keep going sneaking into uh, high and DC 10 all these years <laughs> these different nightclubs across Ibiza it's um, yeah you know who wants to pay 60, 70 euros on the yes. door there's got to be a way around it right Yes, preferably take a wine glass with you. If if you walk in up again to the door with a wine glass, they seldom challenge you. They've assumed you've just popped out. So you've got to do the timing right, but half full glass of wine or anything, um, in you can go. You always just say to me, never make eye contact. Oh, no, don't make eye contact. Walk there as if you own the place and you've got every right to be there. And why on earth would they challenge you? Don't you know who I am? Because <laughs> I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> who are you anyway? Well, that's debatable. I'll let you. Just, when you see the credits at the end of this, you'll know. <laughs> okay. Well, let's not let's not talk about that part just yet. But I think you know that's a very interesting question. Who am I? And I, you know, in eighty-two years, what point in your life was it that you got to that you started to really understand yourself a bit better? I don't think there was a lot to understand. I think, to me, most things are pretty simple and straightforward. And if you vaguely stick to that, I believe you can do what the hell you like and think what the hell you like in this world, providing it doesn't adversely affect somebody else. So if you want to think the, you know, the earth's flat, great, get on with it. As long as you don't try and force it down everyone else's throat, um, just believe do your own thing but yeah I mean I I often say that you know probably not to your face that you're one of my kind of yoga heroes because I think a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to learn how to relax and actually I'd say out of all the people in uh, my lifetime that I've met you're probably one of the most relaxed people you're almost like Buddha because Buddha was very good at doing nothing perfecting the art of doing nothing I think that's actually one of the hardest arts to master in this lifetime, particularly the way it is now. Different to when perhaps you were growing up, but you know, everything's so fast paced now, there's so much technology, everything's all about instant gratification and things being available at the touch of the button and I, you know, patience has gone out the window. Well, it's very nice to be compared to Buddha. I think the only thing we've got in common is that large stomach. Um, but I suppose being a bit stupid helps. You don't think too much. You know, I think things are much more simple than people make out. Keep it simple. And try not to worry. It works for me. I'm not saying it'll work for you, but it's certainly worth a try. I think a lot of people have confused that with the fact that you don't care so much. 
and I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, there's an awful lot of things I don't care about because they don't affect me and they don't adversely affect other people greatly. It's just a fact of life. A lot of things are as they are and you can't change it. Um, I do care. I'm probably more caring than people think. I agree with you that most people think I'm probably not that caring, but deep down inside, yes. But lots of things you just can't change, so don't get all uptight about it. Just go with the flow. Whoever, whoever flow is, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> she's become a good friend. Yeah, she's become a good friend. So I go with flow quite frequently, yeah. And she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't know me, even, doesn't even know I'm there. Well, that's, that's probably the way it should be. If you're really truly in flow, then maybe people don't notice so much. You kind of blend and fade in and fuse into whatever's actually unfolding. And I think that that's probably definitely one of the things that I would say about you is that I could pretty much put you into any situation anywhere in this world right now and you would more or less manage to fit in. Well, I hope so. Um, just ask questions. People love talking about themselves, so you just ask them something about themselves and then you're ahead of the game. That's also where I get it from then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it's now your job. You're paid. Unfortunately, I've never been paid for it, but so I, I still do ask and I am generally interested, but also it is just a very good way of getting to know someone and making them feel more at home. There's people that take it too far and talk forever, but in basic terms, people just answer and then with a bit of luck, they might ask you something about yourself. It wasn't always like that though, because I think back in your day when you were born and you were a child, children should be seen and not heard. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, you never had an adult conversation. Uh, people didn't discuss anything because they, they just thought you didn't have an opinion or you weren't entitled to it anyway. Whereas now, I mean, I have conversation well, with my own children many years ago, my grandchildren now, and it is a conversation. It's a two-way exchange. Whereas before, it was very much seen and not heard. And very how did that make you feel back then? Well, it was perfectly normal. You, you didn't... Whatever you, whatever environment you grow up in, whether it be very, very rich or very, very poor or whatever have you, that's normal. Unfortunately, I lost my father in the war very, very early on, and not to have a father or a man about the house was normal. There were many, many children in my place, uh, my position, um, and you just accepted things. That was life. And at that time, there was food rationing, and it didn't occur to you that <laughs> one day you'd be able to walk into a food shop and buy anything you wanted, as much as you wanted. Those days, there was rationing. Even if you did have the money, you were rationed to a certain amount of meats and vegetables and butter and one egg every Christmas. Powdered eggs were terrible. Powdered milk, that was terrible. But that was normal. If you wanted to eat, you just ate what was there. Is that why you became a chocolate addict? Ah, well, that was one of my um, <laughs> earliest dreams, was to be able to walk into a sweet shop every day and buy a chocolate, a little piece of chocolate. Um, now, of course, you take it all for granted, and I'm gradually fighting myself and not buying as much as I should, because I can, if I start it, I finish it, which is bad. But in those days, <laughs> it was a dream. I mean, an orange was a dream. You didn't... Well, I don't really remember seeing my first banana. 
must effectively psychology so one way or another clearly well, yeah clearly but i don't remember because you didn't have them so it was normal you didn't sit there thinking oh why haven't i got a banana you never saw one there weren't any so that was it you accepted it and and got on with it and that's and that's pretty much how i've carried on through life within reason of course you also yeah. eat quite a lot of bananas though so they're clearly you know these uh, things that you were deprived of as a child the things that you basically eat the most of now uh, yes, I do have one a day. Um, <laughs> takes all my poor pension money, but I do scrape enough together to get it. Um, simply because it's good for you, and I have it with breakfast. But uh, and also, I don't know whether psychologically it's a throwback from the past, thinking, well, I've never had one, so I'm going to have one, one a day now. That was certainly the case with chocolate when it first came out. But as I said before, you've got to watch that. I think you know. I'd like to talk about when you were evacuated during the war because that was probably from what you've told me previously one of the most traumatizing things that's ever happened to you well i guess it was but i don't know if i'm lucky that nature managed to block things out for me or or i'm thick but i don't seem to remember much about it i do know that obviously it's the first time you left your mum and there you were a little toddler in your shorts and pullover and a great big brown label which didn't say feed me my marmalade but it may have done um, and a gas mask and you were put on a train and that was something you've never been on before in your life and you were sent off to some school hall somewhere and stood in a line while people walked up and down and as if it was blind date and thought oh I'll have that one there and they took you off and you never knew whether it was for good reasons or the money the government um, gave them uh, who knows unfortunately uh, I got didn't get very good press so they were deeply religious and they seemed to think if providing you went to church five times on Sunday nothing else existed so you were very scarcely scarcely fed and you were sent out in the morning whatever uh, the weather was out you went and you weren't back allowed in till evening time tea and it was a bit hard, but there again, as I said, that was what life was, and that's it. Get on with it. What are you going to do? You're only, I don't know how old I was, just, um, five or something like that, five or six. So you weren't going to run away back to London. You just got on with it. That was life. Get on with it. But, you know, I mean, in this day and age, that is basically child abuse. I mean, five years old, you've just <laughs> lost your father, never yep. to be seen again, waved him yep. off on his yep. motorbike that's the last memory you have of him and then you were evacuated yes um but again <coughs> excuse me again uh, you didn't have a choice mum said you've got to go uh the pastor b said that uh, london was due for a big big raid and unless you've experienced that you've got no idea of looking up to the sky and seeing a mass of aeroplanes. They were normally ours going out, but then you did look up, and if there was a solitary one, I mean, uh, there was the standard sort of thing we said. We looked at each other and said, that's okay, it's one of ours. Because if it wasn't one of ours, you took cover because you never knew what was coming down. Um, I don't know, I think it was while I was evacuated, a house about... 50 to 60 yards away was or three houses were totally demolished and then you realize well if that man had pressed the button uh, the german up there you know a second earlier or a second later i might not be here doing this little talk
but you, you were a kid and then it didn't really penetrate in those days. You stood there looking for um, what we used to call doodlebugs, which was um, Hitler's invention of a rocket bomb which just set off aiming for England and with sufficient petrol to get there but not to get back. So you just stood in there and you heard this noise which was very, very peculiar and then you waited for it to stop. And when the noise stopped, you stopped and then you waited for the bang. If it was a long way away, you were lucky. If it was very close, some people weren't so lucky. There was some story, but I never understood how it worked out. If you counted how long it was from the time it stopped making a noise to the explosion, that's how far away it was. But arithmetic was never my strong point, so I never managed to get the hell of that. I just took cover and um, managed to survive. Well, thank God for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here either. Well, this is true. (laughs) And and then you go back, you know. um, Say, my father didn't survive, unfortunately. But my grandfather, who was in the First World War, and it's unbelievable what he did. He, um, I don't know the exact details, but he did end up with the Military Cross, which is a very, very high reward and medal. He was Regimental Sergeant Major and a Lancer. Uh, my mum was born in Kensington Barracks, uh, which is just off High Street, Ken now, into a very, very graduated family. And that's probably gone down the line to make me a little bit as I am. Uh, How's that? Well, uh, I don't know, back to seen and not heard sort of thing. You know, there are certain rules, most of which I've forgotten, but they cast you, they, they mould you, you just accept things. There was no affection, there was no room for affection in our family at all. Unfortunately, I don't ever recall giving my mum a kiss or a cuddle or anything. Certainly never ever said I love you, nor did she, which is wrong. I totally disagree with it now, but again, I keep repeating myself, but that's what it's like, so it was normal. Every day is an opportunity to change and you're still like that now. Well, yes, um, I do find showing emotion difficult. Um, again, that's part of the sort of stiff upper lip, don't worry, you shouldn't do that, which I disagree with, I think you should. It's not good for you to hold everything in. But if you spent 82 years holding it in, it's very difficult to let it out. <laughs> what about tomorrow? Um, well, tomorrow I fly home, so I won't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> That's bloody handy, isn't it? Yeah, Saved uh, by the old uh, yeah, aircraft. I will be very nice to the pilot, just in case. <laughs> but I work on a principal, he doesn't want to crash any more than I do, so I'll leave it up to him. I mean, uh, yeah, I think times were incredibly different in the infection stakes and, and the way families interact. I mean, not a day goes by that I don't tell any family member that I love them and I think that that's a very important thing um, but you know it's not like I don't know that you love me you just never tell me that which I think is quite weird but then I do understand the reasons why I mean you were actually a twin as well weren't you yes apparently um, <laughs> which is typical of my mother she never actually mentioned it to me but she mentioned it to someone uh, we both worked for the same company once she got me a job as a salesman and she was talking to one of the uh, co-workers and they informed me that I was a twin. I never quite found out whether the, the twin didn't make it but whether it 
uh, made it and died very young or didn't make it out of the room, I don't know, but yes, I was. Um, but typically, my mother um, don't discuss such things. Uh, she never discussed my father with me. I've never ever even seen a photograph of him. If when I was young he would have walked back into my life, I wouldn't have recognised him. It was just this silly stiff upper lip, for want of a better expression, to discuss such things. So I regret it now. Um, he died in very mysterious circumstances in the war, which I would dearly love to find out about. But try as we may, we couldn't get any information. It was all hushed up for some reason or other. Um, but so I now, children ask. Well, what I'm going to ask, what was the mysterious circumstances? Uh, well, he was stationed at a, uh, some sort of secret establishment up near Milton Keynes, <coughs> excuse me, which trained British agents to be dropped into France by lines. Um, his death certificate said drowned while the balance of his mind was disturbed, or worse than that effect. But it, it said he drowned in a well. Well, now forgive me, I think if I was going to commit suicide, I don't think I'd jump down a well. It's not for sure that anything's going to, you are going to die, and even if you do, it'd be strange. Um, but that's what they said. Uh, and who will he to argue? It was all hush hush. Um, I, my brother and I did some research into it, and I actually went up to the area where it all was meant to happen. And there's no trace of there ever being a well at that establishment. I suppose it could have been many, many miles away, but it did say it was there. And that was it. The death certificate and everything was all signed off within a day. Uh, his body was rushed down to East Sheen, and that was it. So I don't know whether he was a goodie, a baddie, or, or what he was, um, or how it happened. I mean, he could have just been drunk, or could have been thrown down. It could be anything. I don't know. But my mum probably didn't know much more than anyone else, but I do wish I'd had the courage when I was old enough to actually question her about it. But early on, she told me uh, he died in different circumstances. She told you he died in the war, that's what you told me, I think. Yes, we did, well, it was the war, uh, but you know, one assumes if I say to you in the war, you, you just automatically think he was fighting in France or Germany or somewhere. You don't think, oh, was that down a well in England? You know, especially if you're young, you, you, know, you don't. Now you tend to question things and uh, ask a few more questions. But in those days, as I said, I, you didn't ask, and even if you did, they wouldn't have been very well received. So I don't know, I'm afraid. Many question marks, how mysterious mm, yes. and uh, tragic. And, yeah, that's not nice to not know the real reason why that actually... You've definitely told me that story before. Mm. So, obviously, that must have had some kind of impact mm. on your life, not having a dad. Can you sort of maybe elaborate on that? Do you think there's anything, any particular you know, way that that has kind of affected your growth and development as a as a child or as a, as a, as a man, not having that man in your life? Well, it, it must have done, I assume, 
but I, I don't know much about it. You obviously, I mean, I'm more comfortable in women's company than men's. I don't know whether that's anything to do because we, during the war, of course, a, a lot of men were off during the, uh, fighting in a war anyway, and there were small women about. And these were mothers and aunts and things. Um, I expect it did, but I'm not conscious about it. I mean, I didn't rush off and take up knitting or anything because I you know, didn't know Dad. I've got some of his genes. He was a professional speedway rider. And that sort of passed on a bit. I'm not a speedway rider, but I have been involved in racing for a long time, motor, motor car racing for a long time. So I got that from him. Uh, and my mum was a fair daredevil as well. She's actually lapped Brooklyn's track on a motorbike over 100 and was quite a, a, um, a good horsewoman, uh, simply because of dad, her dad being in the uh, uh, horse business, as it were, in the army. So it, just these things rub off and you are what you are. I'm not conscious of anything, but I'm quite prepared to believe it may have done. Interesting. I mean, definitely you're more comfortable in the company of women. And um yeah, yes. <laughs> well, being can, you, can you see where I'm going with this one? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful pregnant pause there. Quite enjoyed that. Yes. Well, being a dead ringer for George Clooney, obviously it does help. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just am more comfortable. I don't, I don't get me wrong. I don't distinguish particularly, but I seem to be attracted to women a lot more than men. Or, uh, socially, you know, not sexually. Well, yeah, sorry, sexually. Oh, hang on a sec. <laughs> yeah, I hope sorry. you are. Yes, I beg your pardon. I'll rephrase that. <laughs> Is there yes. anything else you wanted to confess on this podcast? Oh, yeah, now is the start. <laughs> Outing you at 82. I mean, yeah, it's, all, yeah, yeah. it's all good if you are, but yeah, I'd just yeah. like to know. No, I, don't get confused with me wearing this dress today. That's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not the medieval festival today. Uh, oh, pity, no. <laughs> well, it would be if you saw me in a dress, be very medieval. Um... <laughs> No, I, I just think that, um, as I said, I'm more comfortable in women's company than men's. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no need to apologise. I think, you know, well, obviously everyone has their penchant for a particular sex in terms of their friendship circle and the people that make them feel at home. Um, and I'm definitely more... I used to have a lot more male friends when I was a child because I was definitely a tomboy, but um, I definitely say I have a lot of close relationships with women now in my later years, and I, you know, I mean, it's an interesting beast. Do you, do you think most of your friends are male or female? Oh, a complete mixture, but I mean, no, there's not a strong bias towards women. Um, I just feel that I normally find myself chatting to women more than men mm. in, in any given group. Do you think, you know, that in terms of the life you, you've had, I mean, you've been into photography, you've had a very large business, you've been into motor racing, um, you've been into women, but I think, you know, you've had quite a colourful and checkered life. Do you feel like, you know, that you get the kind of respect that you deserve at your age? Do people kind of maybe not acknowledge you as much in your older years? How do you feel now? Um... Well, no, I'm very grateful for the th for the life I've had. I've managed to do 99% of the things I wanted to do. Don't ask me what the 1% is that I didn't do because I can't think of it. But um, so I'm very grateful. It's nice to look back on it. I'm not the sort of person that rushes up and says, 
did you know I was a racing driver or did you know I was a favourite photographer? If it comes into the conversation started by them, then I'm quite happy to talk about it. But it does sound a bit over the top if you sort of rush into any conversation and say, oh, a racing driver, by the way. But it's nice when it comes up. Mm. So talk us through, I mean, what was your first job? Oh, a <laughs> job. Well, when I was, I started work well before I was 10. I used to have two, maybe three jobs a week at that age, which was helping on a milk round, a coal round, a paraffin round at some stage. I had a paper round from the very, very early age, and I kept that going up till the day before I was conscripted into the RAF. I used to do it on my motorbike later on. Um, that's where the work ethic comes from. You know, we had very little money. Uh, not every room was had furniture. It was a, never invited anyone in because it was a bit of a tip. But Mum did her best because of my dad's circumstances. She wasn't entitled to any pension, war pension, which otherwise had if your husband was killed in the war, you got a pension. I don't know what it was, but because of this so-called suicide, Mum never got anything. So she brought up two children during the war, working her socks off. So then that inherited to me. She used to uh, have a full-time job and then she used to do um, silver surface wait waitressing of an evening when the chosen few that could afford a, a posh dinner had it and they got service. There was ways and means of everything then. And the highlight, one of the highlights of my life, I still remember now, is on the very odd occasion, Mum would wake, come back from waitressing, wake you up at midnight or whatever it was, and produce a chicken leg that she'd managed to uh, relieve from the dinner party. And believe me, that was a treat for my brother and I. She always swore blind that she'd had hers already, whether she had or not, I don't know. But also remembering that she had to walk home from that job in the middle of the road during the blitz, because that was much safer than being on the pavement in case the houses got bombed. So if you can imagine what that chicken leg meant to her and us, you know, she'd worked hard for it, whether she nicked it or not, I don't know. But, uh, and then to come home fighting the bombs and wake your kids up. But just a sign of the time. Now, you know, so if even you, if she didn't tell you that she loved you, that chicken bone was, that was love. Yeah. Yes. But now, unless you've got to walk 500 yards to KFC, you feel as if you're doing a hard done by. Try to do Excuse me, this is my voice. It's that chicken thing that does it. <laughs> um, yes, so the value of things has changed. And it does you good to remember things. And be grateful. Yes, very grateful. No, she didn't have the love and all that sort of stuff that convention says you should have. But walking home during the blitz and looking after two kids when you lost your husband in unpleasant circumstances took a lot. And she worked right up till she was, you know, well past pension age. Doing what? She was a bookkeeper. She was very, very good at figures. 
she could add up a set of figures that you had in front of you and she was looking at them upside down before you could get your calculator out of your pocket. She was very quick, very good. What's the worst job you ever had? Um, well, apart from bringing you up, you mean? Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you were one of you two are the, the joys of my life. The worst job I had. Well, I never really <coughs> had what I called a bad job. I mean, there's bad parts of jobs. I mean, I used to. Um, be in the caravan rental business so you just had to empty the toilets out sometimes which wasn't pleasant but I made sure I charged them so while I'm just doing that I look think oh thank you very much you just bought me you've just paid the rent this week so I never had a bad job I, I, I used to sell all sorts of things one of the first people to sell bongo drums in England. We did used to call you Del Boy Trotter. Yeah, yes, which I, yeah, <laughs> which I'm very proud of. I'm very proud of. I did not know that you sold bongo drums. When was that? <laughs> oh, you can't beat it. Um, <laughs> Is that when you were working in Brixton? Uh, no. When I was a, a, a sales representative trying around, I also started up a little print company with a friend of mine and one of our customers brought in all these African carvings and things. So when I was around, I was having the back of the car, you know, a set of bongo drums and the odd elephant, as one does. <laughs> like the looky-looky man. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Worse, actually, you know, I mean, back then. You probably taught them what to do. You'd hardly made a career out of it, but, you know, if you could wangle the conversation around, that's quite easy to bongo drums or elephants. <laughs> um, if anyone can, you can. That is where I get that from, there's no denying. <laughs> this is something I pass on to you. I will listen to your next bongo drum podcast with interest. <coughs> um, and he used to sell old, old tights as well, ladies' tights. Because they were, you know, I was in the days of stockings. Well, not me personalised, personally, but the women were stockings. But then tights came on the scene. I used to have quite a few of those in the back of the car, odd sizes. Um, and just odds and ends like that. And then um, it, you just have to keep plodding and doing things and something will catch on. You don't wake up one day and say, right, I'm going to be a the best bong go jump salesman in the world you just if it comes along you have a go and if it works it works and so it goes on i think the hardest part of being alive now or growing up in the digital age is you're kind of told that you can be anything you want to be and live anywhere you want to live and do that business set up your own thing and become a millionaire like overnight that's kind of how it looks uh, on instagram and from some of the books that i've read there's a lot of you know, literature lending itself to that type of narrative. And I think, you know, that's certainly not what you were told or the beliefs that you had growing up when you were a child. And I think that that's a very intriguing avenue of exploration in terms of, you know, how that psychologically affects the journey of one's life. Well, people used to think starting your own business, that's great. I'll just work a couple of days a week and I'll play golf the rest. Well, it's not like that. And it's very, very difficult. I remember when I was first starting up, I, I started a modelling agency. I don't, have I ever told you about well, that? It really doesn't surprise me. No. Yes, it had some perks. Um, and uh, we needed a telephone. And I, I lived in Fulham, which wasn't terribly fashionable then. Couldn't afford to move back now. But it was a bit... I used to... I wouldn't admit to living in Fulham. I used to call it Lower Chelsea because I was a bit of a snob in my coffee bar days. Anyway, I phoned up to get a a telephone, telephone or applied for a telephone 
and the man from what was then GPO um, sort of virtually said, well, what do you want a telephone for? And I decided to beg to get it, because it wasn't accepted that everyone had a telephone. And then in the end, he begrudgingly gave me what was then called a party line. This was your phone, but you shared it with the next door neighbour who had another phone. So if you wanted to make a phone call, you went over, picked the receiver up, and if he was chatting, you had to put it down and wait. So we got one of those. But now, of course, you know, if you lost your phone, you walk into a shop and you, within five minutes you've got a new one. But more importantly, you could listen to your neighbours' conversations. Well, yes. Um, How brilliant. Well, yes. I suppose I can't ever think of any stories, but if I did, I used to make up things. So if he wasn't, I'd just say some silly line to get him interested, you know. So I just took her head out of the oven or something like that and then wait and see if the police turned up. But no, it was, it was just it was so start, back to starting your own business. It's bloody hard work, and it's harder work in general than working for somebody else because the buck stops with you. If there's a problem, you can't walk up to your ne- your manager and say, "Look what's happened," or them tell it, "You've got to deal with it yourself." And people don't realise how much is involved, and you've got business partners whether you want it or not. The tax man is a very important business partner, you know, and the VAT and all these people, uh, they all take the money. It's very hard. But don't let that stop you. You, you, you. It's probably easier in many ways now because you don't get quite so many rebuffs and this magic internet, you can look up anything and find out anything within seconds. Whereas before, you, know, you just couldn't. It was a bit of a silent world. You really had to dig deep to find out something. But you, yeah, well, you're not shy of digging deep to find out a lot of it. I've never met somebody that asks so many questions of people in not so many ordinary sets of circumstances. It used to be something I was very embarrassed about when I was a child that you used to do that yeah, in yeah, the supermarket till Well, <laughs> I probably don't ask the same guys of questions I got. But when we used to go and get an ice cream, you'd ask the ice cream man how many ice creams he'd sold today. Well, yes, I did have an inquiring nature. And normally, people like being asked questions. Not every question, obviously, you've got to aim it at the right people, the right question at the right people. But people like talking about themselves. So, as I said much earlier on, in a conversation, I ask someone a question. Not too deep, too deep, a question. But also, I was interested. I, I just wanted to know, well, OK, how many ice creams do you sell? You know, is it 10 or is it 1,000? Because if it's 1,000, I might go into the ice cream business. Who knows? <laughs> and you do, I think now you've got to encourage people to ask questions. And especially of the older generation, things that you may not find on internet, just things that you don't even think about, that they just took as normal every day. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned in 82 years? Don't talk to you on one of these bloody microphones. <laughs> one, one might cry. <laughs> Definitely don't want to feel anything. <laughs> um, Just this old, cold stone beneath our bottoms in the old town um, of Delt Villa. And there comes Mr. Petrohead again. Let's wait for him to pipe down. my mother on her motorbike. <laughs> oh, she's back from the dead. She's back, yeah. She's very impressed with this conversation. Um, hang on. Let's just wait for that to stop. 
That is one thing about Ibiza in the winter. Everyone's quite partial to a motorbike in this country, and they do yeah. basically start riding them in places they're not supposed to be riding them, including in the middle of the countryside, down little sort of yeah paths well, which are basically pedestrian. Well, he wasn't even riding it; he was standing by the side of it, showing off. He was just trying to impress that girl walking past. Oh yes, but it didn't work. She's carried on. <laughs> Good on her. Go on, uh, Flo. Uh, lesson in life: um, nothing lasts forever. And if you want to do something, do it, because you just don't know what's around the corner. What's around the corner? Well, at the moment, a cup of tea shop, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, drink tea. Forget all this healthy rubbish that my daughter's into. Drink a few cups of tea a day. Well, you were probably on about 29 until recently. Yes, I, uh, I've... Uh, Hang on. acoustics of this particular little yes, bolt know, hole that we've yeah, uh, thrown ourselves yeah. into are uh, pretty the, impressive. Got these old walls can definitely do more than talk. I, I say there's another lesson in life. If you don't like noise, don't sit in a stone cupboard. What are we? What are we in exactly? I don't know. This is Dort Villa. This is a, a World UNESCO heritage site, which seemed like an apt place to oh, get yeah, one that, fossil connected to another. Yes, that's me. I'm a World Heritage site. I agree with that. I know, but we're sitting on something which resembles a coffin. Well, there's some poor bugger down there. Look. Got to get it easy and gently. Yeah, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> not a lot else to do down there. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not much else to do down there. So and he's got no chance of going for a cup of tea, so <laughs> just count your blessings. Well, that's another thing, yeah. Choice. I think one of the greatest things in life is choice. going to reenact that scene from The Great Escape yes. where they're going to get those little bits of metal uh, wire and just knock this man off his well, perch because he's starting bit, to annoy me a little bit. And now he's coasting past wall. without the engine on to go down the, well, the, the ramp of the old town. You're not supposed yeah. to do that on two wheels. Well, that's up to him. As long as he doesn't stop me getting a cup of tea, I don't mind. Tea, come, tea comes after the podcast. You've got another 20 minutes. Oh, my goodness me. Possibly 15. Yeah, yeah. Might let you off. Yes. Might even give you a hot cross bun if you're a good boy. Oh, yippee. Wasn't that like one of the best meals you've ever ate in your whole life? The smell of hot bread wafting within a boiled oh, egg? That's right, yes. My friend and I rather naively decided to um, hitchhike to Afri North Africa. From this, where? Uh, uh, this, well, from London. Um, and, <laughs> and this fantastic decision was made but after looking at, you won't ever remember them unless you're very old, little sixpenny, six, uh, old penny map of your ESO maps. And, of course, I wasn't really aware of scale in those days. It didn't look terribly far. So I thought, oh, that sounds quite exciting. Let's go down to Tangiers. So, yes, we set off. We... Um, did man we managed to make it, and several interesting things on route. But the main meal was one night we had walked all the way through the night, not getting a lift, and it was raining. And then we approached the village in the very, very early hours of the morning, and we were plodding along, very wet. And suddenly, this blue Citroen van pulled up to our left. The door of this cafe opened, and it's a typical French cafe manager standing there and then they were taking these new loaves and we went in 
in their perfect French for you, or the oof, or whatever you call them. And um, I'm partial to a very soft boiled egg with soldiers. And I don't even mind if they're French soldiers, as long as they're bread. So then we had our first hot food for a long time, and we dipped our soldiers into lovely boiled eggs, and that memory stayed with me forever. Is that the best meal of your whole life? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I basically, I'm getting a little bit more interested in food, but I only really eat because I have to. I've been told if you don't eat, you die, so it seemed a pretty good choice to make. But I, I don't go in for all the special five-star stuff. Food only gets to a certain point, and that doesn't get any better as far as I'm concerned. You know, a Sunday roast, ideal. <coughs> you know, sort of rearish kind of beef, lovely potatoes, all the usual trimmings, that's fine. Or this Michelin five star, you can keep that. Um, I'm quite happy with that. Right, well, I completely disagree, but that's uh, that's great. That's why well, we're yeah, different, well, and that's course, what makes yeah, us all yeah, course, human yeah. beings, that we all have our differentiations yeah. in uh, opinions and, uh, and taste, particularly. Uh, otherwise, life would be very boring indeed. So if these old walls could talk, what do you think that they might have said? Well, they would look down and say, what on earth are all those people looking at their mobile phones for? Because now, you, wherever you go, I'm, I'm probably just as bad myself, but that's one of the greatest changes ever, this mobile phone. There's one now, look, look down there. A little French lady walking past, muttering away in French. Or Spanish, one of them. It's foreign, anyway. Um, and followed, followed by her mum <laughs> on a phone. She's probably talking to her, because they're at least ten foot apart. So it appears if anyone's more than ten foot apart, you have to ring them or text them. <laughs> or WhatsApp them or FaceTime yeah, them. Yeah, something like that. I mean, don't, whatever you do, don't talk to them. <laughs> that might be misconstrued. You might have a feeling. Yeah, well, there we are. <laughs> um, so you might have to look into their eyes and connect to them. Yeah, connect, yeah. So, um, I mean, that, that's changed. And considering my fantastic business wisdom, my friend of mine told me he was going into the mobile phone business. Once they were like a brick then, and they had to be fixed and wired into the car. I said, well, I can't see that catching on it, to be honest. But I remember but, you and your brick phone. It was brilliant. Yeah, good luck to you. I, yeah, but I didn't <laughs> think that was going to catch on. So maybe I'd like to review that one day. I don't know. What else but, didn't you think was going to catch on but caught fire big oh, time? Another big mistake, my friend drove round in 1960, whatever it was, in one of the first minis, uh, you know, designed by Alec Isagoni, um, who had a brainwave of turning the engine sideways for the first time in history. Anyway, I looked at this and I thought, no one's going to buy that. But apparently I'm wrong. The mini has sold. Uh, but I didn't think that would last somehow but they have improved it, they tell me. And then having raced one for seven or eight years, I should bite my tongue every every time. But I honestly didn't think they would last. Interesting, interesting. I mean, what got you into motor racing? Obviously, your dad had his uh, <coughs> Speedway motorbike and your mum was in the sidecar. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, just something I fancied. And... Um, and I had this mini, and I joined a London Motor Club, and um, they said, oh, they've got a race meeting coming up, blah, blah, blah. They said, why don't, you, why don't you enter? I said, well, it's bog standard, as you know, it's slow. Oh, they'll all be like that. That was my first lesson in motor racing. I drove all the way up to Snetterton and 
driving in my bog standard mini only to see people with transporters loading out lotus in lands and god knows what else um, so there's no such thing as standard racing but I enjoyed it and that was in 1961 um, I carried on doing it. it must have been relatively good because a few people offered me drives i did get a, a full sponsorship which was brilliant unheard of but um, i raced for this company and um, made a bit of a name and got on and just thoroughly enjoyed it and then um i met you well no, i met your mum while i was still racing but we then finally got married and uh, <laughs> well she sort of uh, strong-armed you into that one did she uh, oh yes yes yeah, no, I said, so in the end I go, I said, all right, next year, all right. First Saturday in January, poof, booked. <laughs> <laughs> shows you what a catch I was, doesn't it? Well, shows you what a stubborn old goat you are as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought next year sounded a long way off, but I didn't actually plan for January the 9th. Yeah, I even remember it. Who says I'm not romantic? I remember it. We got married in what was very fashionable in those days, Caxton Hall. No one's heard of it now, but that's where all the celebs managed to do it. We managed to wangle it because I worked up there and your mum worked up there. You snuck in the back door, well, you mean? Yeah, it's a, yeah, a bit of a cash-in-hand job. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you, Dad. No, I'm not sure it was legal. I should actually get the house back, I think. I don't know. But um, <laughs> She hasn't got it anymore. No, she, no, it's long she, gone. Everything no, that connected to you has yeah, uh, been no, sold. No, she's got three or four now. Um, <laughs> good on her. Oh, good on her. She upgraded, that's why. Yeah, no, I have no <laughs> problems with Elaine whatsoever. Good luck to her and her new one. <laughs> hope they're very, very happy. Um, and that's another thing. Don't be bitter about anything or even bad. Tell about it because you only hurt yourself. Well, it's quite natural to fight over a divorce, obviously, but uh, we didn't, which was very, very good, and that was good for both of us. But if you do fight, you just end up getting very, very bitter. I'm a strong believer in actually there should be some sort of, you should be made to have some form of contract beforehand while you're friends. If you and I can agree something while we're friends, it's got to be a lot better than trying to agree something when we're enemies. And then you don't have to stick to it. If both of you don't want to stick to it, then don't. But you've got some foundation because no one ever thinks they're going to get divorced. But unfortunately, 50% uh, of the people do. No one ever would have thought that your second partner would catch Alzheimer's either, which is obviously a very tragic end to what was a beautiful partnership and relationship. Yes, well, one had never heard of it um, early on. I mean, if there's if there was some run down a road that was a bit scatty, you just oh, that's a mad old lady lives up the end. No one had a term for it. But what's happened now, in my non-medical opinion, is that nature has taught us to look after our bodies and we can make them last a lot longer, but not our minds something happens in the mind uh, they're not too sure what it is but it just furs up and things don't send messages to where they should and things don't work and it's absolutely tragic and sad it changes the person completely the person that you knew and loved no longer exists totally totally different person and you have to have an amazing amount of patience which apparently I never had when I was younger, but to deal with it because it actually affects 
friends and acquaintances much more than the patient. She doesn't know she's asked you that question ten times. And it's very, very hard to say, oh, for God's sake, I've told you that nine times. You don't. You just have to come down to her level and answer it as if it was the first time. And you agree with everything. If she says it's Christmas Day, it's Christmas Day. End of story. It takes a lot of adjustment. I feel sorry for all the partners in the world that are going through it. Very, very difficult. But there we are. As I said earlier, nothing lasts forever. We had 25 good years travelling the world. She was excellent. Thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. So let's be thankful for that. It's just very sad that she can't remember any of it now. Her, her memory is oh, a minute, maybe two minutes. If, if I go down to see her, then I leave the room for a couple of minutes. If I come back in, she greets me as if I hadn't been down there. Even though we've been out for an hour's drive. Mm. If you vanish out of sight, you've gone. Out of sight, out of mind. Yes, uh, certainly out of her mind. And she, oh, hello, what are you doing down here? But you've just got to say, I've come to see you, darling. You know, in the early days, you'd have to say, oh, for God's sake, we've just been out for a drive for 20, 50 miles. What's the matter with you? But it, you, uh, you won't get through. You've got more chance of getting through to these stone walls than you have to someone that's got outside at a certain level. There's different levels, many, many different levels. And it affects people in many different ways. She's still very, very agile and things, but memory-wise, absolutely nothing. So what did you learn from caring for her for so many years? It's bloody hard work. <laughs> um, you learn to actually, I call it a day of white lies and tears. Because that's what it is, you just have to. When you go down there, um, big brown eyes look up for you and you say, you come to take me home? You say, yes, darling. Look straight in her face and lie. Because the only thing that keeps all these people going, and it's not just her, it's all of them, is going home. She doesn't know where she lives. Doesn't even know the town. But she thinks she's going home. So you have to say, oh, yes, your daughter's coming down tomorrow to take you home. So you just lie. You say whatever is best for them. It's very hard if you've not accustomed to telling lies. It's very, very difficult to look at someone in their eyes and say, yes, darling, I'm taking you home. Is that the worst lie you've ever told? Yes. Yeah. Because you know there's no hope, but... I think that's her. Yeah, that's her, ringing up. Sorry, darling, I'll take it all back. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, I've talked about these bloody people on mobile phone. <laughs> I, I've got one down here. Rule number one of podcasting, one yeah, has yeah, to turn yeah, the mobile I'm, phone off. We'll let you off. Man bag is another thing. So that is the worst, worst fib you've ever told. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it's only the worst fib to me, but it's the best fib to her. You've told her what she wants to hear. See, once upon a time they made these windows narrow so that they fired bow and arrows out of them. 
now you nip it there to make a phone call. Very good. Well, is it, you know, it's the modern day development. It's such a beautiful, beautiful old oh, town yes, here. No, and it kind of lovely. reminds me of our days of uh, wandering around Port Grimaud and Saint Raphael and yes. south of France when I was a child. So it feels like a good place. Uh, to have recorded this and I kind of think we ought to make a move because my bum has actually gone numb on these cold yes, um, stones of Dalt Villa. Uh, my tongue has gone numb making up all those lies. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need a cup of tea. I definitely need a cup of tea. Watch this space. Colin Yule, thank you very, very much for joining You're us very here. Welcome. On the very first edition of the If These Old Walls Could Talk podcast. One last question which we're always going to ask our guests at the end of the show. If there were three things that you wish you'd known then that you do know now what would they be? Oh goodness knows. No I knew it all then. You still think you do? Yeah I still do. Yeah well you've got to think you do but ask questions and you do know it all. I, I can't say there's anything staggering. There are lots of things, obviously, that you If there were, you know, things that you'd like to have told your younger self that you've learnt across the course of a lifetime? Do you know, I honestly can't think of anything worth it. Turn it off and I'll never think when I've had a cup of tea. I'm going to come back to that one. No, we're not going to come back, but um, if you can't think about it, that's okay. You can um, mail it in to us and uh, we'll read it out on the next podcast. Uh, Yes, I'll look at someone else's thoughts. and and Somebody interesting. Yeah, someone interesting. (laughs) And then then put it over. Oh, ding again. Sorry about that. Ding, see. I'm up with the modern technology. Saved by the bell, I think it's called, uh, for our listeners who very kindly and generously stuck with us through the course of the show. And... um, that draws us neatly to a close. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.